The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this episode, Preston Montague talks about how to achieve positive ecological impacts with plants from all over the globe with structural elements that serve animals, insects, and people. It's not just about native plants. Understanding the relationships that compose an ecosystem and the key species that is important. Learn how to back into landscape design and avoid the ultimate disappointments in a static landscape. Preston Montague is a landscape architect and artist who developed a passion for the natural world while growing up in the rural foothills of Virginia. Currently, he lives in Durham, North Carolina, working on projects that encourage stronger relationships between people and the natural world. Preston is a host on the Native Plant Podcast. This is Episode 80, Achieving Successful Ecological Landscape Design with Preston Montague. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Preston, what is ecological planning design and environmental restoration? Two really different things. Ecology is the framework that I think a lot of landscape architects have been operating from for a long time. A lot of that work is really becoming mainstream with the public now. There are organizations like Wild Ones and other organizations that seek to provide agency to the general public relative to ecological planting design. But to me, ecology is about relationships. Ecological planting design is about decentering oneself and recentering around species that you see and may not see about wild energies that you try and manipulate and harvest for the purpose of developing plant life, soil health, human health, and other resources. It's really about designing outside of yourself and in a way to connect other species and wild energies to your landscape under your charge. Restoration work suggests that some sort of damage has been done. Restoration work is often what people operating with the framework of ecology are tasked to do, and that is walk into underdeveloped or damaged ecologies, in my case using plants and materials, in an effort to reestablish resources and ecological function in those spaces for the purpose of developing more relationships between animals, wild energies, and plants. When you say wild energies, what are you talking about? I'm talking about wind and rain, all those things that might contribute to creating climate and microclimates, which I guess is the scale that most of us are working in. 
Well, how do you determine whether your garden or landscape project is a good match for ecological planning? I don't really give people the choice. To a certain degree, it's my job to deliver a product to people and hit their asks, relieve their pains. At every decision point, I try and think about how does this choice impact species beyond the people that I'm serving? How do the choices that I make reduce energy? How do the choices I make impact other generations beyond mine? I rarely bump into an ask from a client where I'm like, I can't make a more ecologically sensitive decision here. I have to make a more destructive or conventional choice to meet this ask. To a certain degree, what we're describing is a mindset. I lucked out. My original landscape design education was horticulture focused and sustainability focused back when sustainability wasn't even something on the lips of corporations to apply to their product. Even in 2006 and 7, when I was introduced to sustainable landscape design, permaculture, it felt so like forward and futuristic, almost kind of like unattainable and radical at the time. And now everything that you buy has a green version. To a certain degree, I say it's a mindset because I just think about landscape design from a resource savings perspective. Certainly in the earliest parts of my career, I was working with clients with slim budgets, and I never thought that a slim budget was a deterrent for me to apply excellent design thinking or providing resources for people that they asked for. You just kind of have to adjust your design thinking in a way to meet those objectives with minimal resources and parameters. I just approach design from the perspective of someone with the interest of expanding ecological health. Could you give us an example of that in one of the projects that you have designed? Sure. You know, and there's going to be a certain degree to which in the very near future, even identifying as an ecological or sustainable designer is like it's kind of old hat. So I even kind of chuckle at the idea of calling myself an ecological landscape designer. One of the lowest hanging fruits in this regard is, no pun intended, is making selections of plants that are naturally occurring or at least reasonably native to the environment that I'm designing in. So I'm selecting species that have a smaller ecological footprint to source and have a larger ecological footprint relative to providing resources. You can even take that down to materials, and that's a big aspiration of mine, is making material decisions decisions that have a positive impact on the environment. Best thing to do is select materials that I might be able to source locally so that I'm not having people truck stuff in from California so that I can get that really beautiful patio that someone found on Pinterest. I can make recommendations for some of the minerals that we mine here in the triangle as a gravel or stone that is quarried from within 300 miles. Not only in that situation would you get materials, stone specifically, that looks like it is part of this ecosystem, but the footprint of travel is smaller. When you're making ecological decisions, I find that not only is it important to make decisions about materials, plants, etc. that add benefit, but also materials, plants, etc. that don't require or don't damage the environment in transport to get to you. Let's say that you're wanting to design an ecological plan. Where's your thought process begin when you arrive at your site for the first time? I very rarely get requests for landscape designs that are purely about returning resources to the land. 
When I get requests like that, restoration projects, stream bank mitigation, returning farmland to forest, that sort of thing, I usually get very conventional asks, even in commercial settings. Where's the parking going? Where are the cars going? Where are the people going? And how can plants support that? Rather than just kind of throw solutions that come from the gut and don't really get a lot of critical thinking, what I like to do is laser target objectives that provide the experience people want, then laser target objectives that I feel like that the site demands. I like to work backwards from what is the experience, what is the activity. For example, if someone wants a bocce court in their backyard, that comes with a specific size. What do you need to support an afternoon playing bocce? Well, maybe some shade in a seating area. Honestly, with landscape design, it kind of unpacks itself. When it comes to providing ecosystem service in an effort to improve ecological health of a site, I like to laser target particular species or at least types of organisms. This particular client, I see an opportunity to increase resources for songbirds. Might see an opportunity to increase opportunities for pollinating insects. Maybe there is an opportunity to include an apiary on site and that sort of activity and provide plants that might serve that apiary, for example. If I can drill down to very specific animals to target, this particular butterfly that is historically absent in the areas. Monarchs is a good example of this, providing specifically to laser target the appeal of monarchs or specifically laser targeting really charismatic songbirds that provide a beautiful call. And maybe relative to the monarchs, I might provide not only a select species of milkweed that they utilize for rearing young or eating on. So I might include some Mexican zinnia annuals that I find in my landscape seem to be favored. At least that they're very attractive to monarchs. With songbirds, you may find that the species you're trying to laser target are more seed feeders, or perhaps they're more berry feeders. That's really the level of scientific inquiry that my studio is beginning to expand upon. Now that I've got a process down for landscaping design for humans, I'm looking for ways to use GIS and some of these broader research tools to more closely target results in the animal kingdom. I am trying to not just design what my gut tells me. That's super important, of course. I'm also trying to use research data and science in a way to really create a finer grain solution that is science-driven and not just only instinct. You mentioned birds. Do you have a helpful hint or maybe a couple helpful hints for those that want to draw songbirds to their landscape? Is that something you could expand on? Yeah, and actually that's something that I'm putting a lot of energy into right now. I'm fortunate enough to have a relationship with my local Audubon chapter, which is New Hope. Audubon at Large is an organization that if you're interested in bringing more birds to the landscape, that's a great place to start. You will be overwhelmed with a wonderful library of information that not only the national chapter, but more local chapters have available to provide agency to home gardeners. I recommend also joining your local chapter. Doug Tallamy is someone who you most certainly will know, and I'm sure the name sounds very familiar to many of your listeners. 
Mr. Tallamy is doing a lot of excellent work with really diving in deep with understanding what it is that's putting so much pressure on birds and the relationship between more birds and more insects. The connection being more native plants, specifically more keystone species, creates more insects that produce the protein that a lot of our very familiar charismatic songbirds require for bringing up a brood and living healthy lives. And so it starts with native plants is a really kind of clumsy distillation of Doug Tallamy's work. Are there some trees better than others? If your goal is to attract songbirds, the answer is coming up yes. And the same thing goes with forbs and grasses, aka perennials. So yes, if you are trying to meet the demands of a certain organism, I think the next step of native and naturalistic planting design, not the same thing, is about, okay, we understand the importance of including native plants in our landscapes for the purpose of appealing to naturally occurring organisms like birds and insects and bringing those in. That the more cosmopolitan our planting palette is, the more we risk not providing resources to anybody except ourselves visually. Keystone species is an ecological term describing species of plant or animal, say in this case plant. Many, many other organisms are reliant upon that removing that organism from the food web. You have a bigger, more catastrophic impact on the relationships that compose that ecosystem. One thing that I draw from Tallamy's work is the inclusion of oaks, birches, and if possible, willow into all of my designs, which he is demonstrating creates the most caterpillars, which is the highest source of protein and improves the lives of birds the most. Also, keystone species for forbs, flowering perennials, and even grasses. But I don't really think that it's just about native plants. One idea that I'm developing is the idea of native structure. As I've been developing landscapes for birds and trying to figure out what are the patterns that I'm seeing, I think it's very intuitive for us to look at food. We kind of eat all day. I guess I do. Certainly since the pandemic, that's been a bad habit I picked up. When I used to keep aquariums professionally, that people fed their fish the same way they feed themselves. It's kind of too much. You can't anthropomorphize that, really. I find that relative to providing resources for birds and providing food, it's not the only thing. It's extremely important. Getting birds into the landscape is about creating a comfortable, recognizable environment so that birds feel comfortable inching their way into your landscape. Many birds find their way into the landscape through a series of investigations. The way birds investigate and become comfortable, to a certain degree, have different personalities, and the boldness with which they approach a landscape depends on many factors. Bird size, bird diet, essentially native structure. What is the structure of plants for me here on the East Coast in a temperate forest versus the native structure of plants in somewhere like Sedona? or the Rockies. Surely birds must look at the organization of a landscape and begin to make decisions about are there resources there? Is there safety there? Triangulating those two, is it a place that I want to land? I'm beginning to look beyond plant species and I teach my students 
don't get so hung up on species. You want to back your way into choosing species. For example, when I first got into design, I would walk onto a porch and say, ooh, I'd love to put a forsythia here, and let's put some azalea over here, and ooh, I'd love to have some peonies over here, and that sort of thing. I don't know what was causing me to make those decisions, but it wasn't strategic enough for me to scale into education. I had to figure out a way to teach people who maybe don't have a lot of species at the ready to name, how do they make plant decisions? First, let's start off simple and work our way to complexity. Rather than going ahead and deciding that that's got to be a forsythia and it's got to go there, let's back into it this way. First of all, look at plants like this. Canopy trees, understory trees, large, medium, small shrubs, ornamental grasses, flowering forbs, and annuals. Look at the world through that lens. In fact, when you're walking around on a hike or maybe in the car, relax your vision. Make it blurry. And notice how suddenly, as the information reaching your brain becomes simplified, you begin to not get hung up on that being an oak and that being a hickory and that being a maple. But you start to see, oh, there's a layer of canopy trees. Oh, and there's a layer of understory trees. Looky there. There's large, medium, and small shrubs congealed into groups. There are grasses and forbs filling the spaces in between. That is the structure that I think you can't just go to California and transplant that structure into somewhere like Santa Cruz or Baja, Mexico. That has its own organization of plants. And I suppose stepping back even further and identifying, do you want a forested space here or a grassland savanna space here or more of a prairie meadow grassland thing here? It's about starting off with these big, simpler archetypes and categories and working back to it, for example. So we're talking about that front porch. It's like, okay, I said for Sithy, but really what I need is some screening. Okay, well, what do I need? Okay, I need that screen to be 12 foot tall so when I'm standing on the porch, I can't be seen. I can't have it any more than eight foot wide or else it starts creeping into the house. Right there is a 12 foot tall plant, eight foot wide max. Well, that's not a canopy tree and it's not an understory tree. That's a large shrub. Okay, do I want that large shrub to be evergreen or do I need it to be deciduous? Well, I'd prefer for it to be evergreen so that I can sit on the porch even in winter and not be seen by my neighbors. Okay, so it's going to be evergreen. Now, what sort of services might want it to provide? Well, like, well, gosh, I sure would like to have berries to give me something to watch in the wintertime when there's nothing else going on. And wouldn't it be cool to see cedar waxwings come eat berries? You start whittling down all these parameters and suddenly, boom, there's a Nellie Stevens holly at the end of your porch. You don't assign it a species until the very end. Since I'm trying to be in the service of naturally occurring plants to me, Let's say Ilex opaca, our native holly, <laughs> instead of the hybrid, although it gets really big. How do we apply this to a McDonald's parking lot? McDonald's parking lots was where I cut my teeth out of grad school. Often one of the first projects that landscape architecture students are handed. During my tenure with parking lots, eventually I got really bored with just putting in the traditional Indian hawthorns and steeds, hollies, and knockout roses, and challenged myself with how can I make this naturally occurring, or at least looking like it. That was really challenging because for a lot of us working in the commercial or urban environment, a lot of the design work is already put into a recipe for us. And so a McDonald's parking lot is composed of street yards when you're facing the street, buffers around the edges to block the restaurant from neighbors. 
each of these zones require their own special approach. Let's take street yards, for example. The point of a street yard in a McDonald's parking lot is to provide a layer of evergreen shrubs to block headlights and to provide essentially a barrier that differentiates public from private space. The problem with that is there aren't a lot of naturally occurring evergreen shrub species that are also really tolerant of conditions along roadsides, aka heat, light, and droughtiness. There's not a lot of native species that I feel like comfortable walking away from without knowing what sort of management they're going to have. That was a big challenge, and ultimately there's naturally occurring boxwood and junipers and these sorts of things which I ended up using. Things like mountain laurel are just not appropriate for a lot of parking lots. They live like, clinging to the cliffs and forests in the foothills. They don't live in a hot, sun-blasted environment. That was a huge problem for me. I really wrestled with that. A street yard is also composed of canopy trees for the purpose of providing shade on the street and in the interior of the parking lot, also helping to kind of like bring the McDonald's to earth, not having it be so just kind of like dramatic. It's kind of knocking the wind out of it. That's where I really found the most value when working in commercial sites as an ecological landscape designer. It's like, okay, there's a certain degree to which I'm not going to be able to provide a lot of resources with shrubs if I stick with a strict naturally occurring, aka native, palette. What I need to do is get all of my resources in the understory and the canopy trees. And that's where understanding keystone tree species was so important. In the end, I was like, okay, every McDonald's I do has between 8 and 20 canopy trees in it. I'm going to just toggle different oak species. Recently, I helped with a study on an old parking lot in an old mall that was being refurbished, and we had these trees that were 70, 80 years old from the original build of the parking lot. So why did half the trees die, and who remained and why? Well, the trees remaining were oaks and crepe myrtles. Crepe myrtles are fun, but get a lot of flack if you use them. It doesn't bother me, unless it's a little bit of a groan for anybody listening who might be from North Carolina and practicing landscape design. The evidence is that oaks withstand the anaerobic, droughty conditions in a parking lot. Just stick with oaks. And if you need to play with variety, I just divide it into red oaks and white oaks because that'll give you two different fall colors and two different leaf shapes. And even then, if I had two different types of white oak and two different types of red oak, that gave me the species diversity and aesthetic diversity that made that McDonald's parking lot begin to appear gardened. Also had a lot of fun in the buffers, and this is a direct translation that I took into the residential sector, that buffers surrounding commercial properties are intended to block neighbors from being annoyed or bothered by whatever activity is on your commercial property. Let's say McDonald's goes in next to a neighborhood. It has a minimum width of buffer to install. This is usually on the outside of the parking lot, and so it doesn't have the same heat and drought pressures, so you can play with more species. That allowed me to explore the use of species like red maple, black tupelo, inkberry holly, lots of larger ornamental grasses. It allowed my palette to expand, but still stick with a personal mandate of naturally occurring plants and really hyper-concentrate my 
bird and pollinator resources, knowing that just because I plant a bird-friendly plant in the parking lot of McDonald's, it doesn't mean it's going to stop there. That it was really the buffers and the edges where I really flexed in the service of pollinators and birds. I heard you mention design by subtraction. What did you mean by that? We're talking about a series of slides that I've been including on bird-friendly landscape presentations recently, realizing that all of the work you may be putting into your landscape, depending on your goals, may be for naught because the choices you're making with management and installation may be scaring birds away. Let's look at the perspective of birds. Well, what's your gardening practices like? How often are you cranking up that leaf blower? How rigorous are your native layers? Is your yard just lawn with a few trees or do you have understory trees and shrubs stacked in ways that allow birds to incrementally step by step find their way into the landscape? Do you have dogs, cats, or children that are creating conditions outside that are scaring birds away? Gardening by subtraction is subtracting those elements and behaviors that are pushing pollinators and birds away, even if you're planting and designing for them. Gardening by subtraction may also be removing invasive species. Landscape architects seem to be jumping into what can they add, and no one wants to spend time cleaning up the kitchen before they start making their next meal. Meaning, get in there, remove those invasive species, identify those behaviors and approaches that may be scaring birds away, and then, once your kitchen is clean, start cooking. Same thing with landscaping. Make sure that your landscape is ready to capitalize on your additions. Maintenance practices would fall in there, too, because I'm envisioning this ecological landscape, then it's attacked with the power shears. Noise is a big deal. Also, pollution. I try and help people understand that your lights are pollution. The noise you generate is pollution. I also show a map to people of where bird migration routes are, and I say, hey, do you live somewhere where birds regularly go through? Are your expectations reasonable based on where you live for the bird experience you want? All of that is about really getting realistic first about what your bird experience is or your pollinator experience is so that you don't become disappointed because just because you plant for it doesn't mean they're going to come. Is there a disadvantage to ecological design? At its base, just decentering oneself is a huge, huge, huge practice and a life-changing practice the same way meditation is a life-changing practice, but both decentering yourself and meditation require work. I guess one of the disadvantages is we don't know enough about it to understand when you're not getting a lot of valuable ecological thinking in your design work. It's still really easy to greenwash bathroom cleaner the same way it's really easy to greenwash design thinking. I don't think there is enough out there for people to discriminate between excellent ecological design thinking and hopeful naturalistic planting. The danger is in not achieving the results you want because it's made to seem easier than it really is. What does decentering mean? Decentering oneself is saying, how many times today have I used the word I or we? Am I really creating a landscape and thinking about the world as it orbits me, or am I living my life in a way that serves the larger health of the people and the environment that I'm in? Decentering yourself may be as simple as refusing that peony in an effort to get that grass that maybe doesn't have as much flower power. 
decentering oneself is making decisions as a homeowner, as a client, a home gardener, making decisions just with plants in an effort to serve other species. But as a designer, decentering yourself and saying, hey, are you putting the effort into making design decisions to laser target other species? Or are you trying to get this out, making 3.30 p.m. decisions, not really thinking this through, and just capitalizing on the fact that you may be providing a service for somebody who doesn't understand the difference between a high and a low quality product. Centering oneself as a designer means designing as if you're the client, not designing just for the client. All right. How about greenwashing? There's a certain degree to which producing excellent ecological design work is a journey. Think in the beginning, simply promising to use more native plants is enough. I hope you graduate quickly beyond that step, but greenwashing to me is making promises about ecosystem service that doesn't hit the mark. The fact that we don't really have a ways for homeowners to measure the success of design, there's just a lot of trust there. Since we don't have a way of really helping to visualize what a landscape with high ecosystem service looks like and performs like necessarily, greenwashing is basically the promise of something uh, that isn't accurate. That a lot of people design with hope. I certainly do. It's the aspiration and moving out away from hope and measuring your own successes and failures. And that's something my studio is doing right now. We're finally beginning to have some projects mature and reveal themselves. We're beginning to keep track of those, survey our clients about their experience, and really begin to track what we plant, how we plant it, what succeeded, what didn't, and begin to connect that to species that it might serve. There's just a lot of deep, invisible work that I think landscape architects owe their clients because we have access to that literature. This is just still, in my opinion, nascent relative to the home gardener. We've got what we need. It's a decision at this point whether or not you are designing ecologically or not in landscape architecture. So we're designing ecologically, but are we able to go more than just a static, boring landscape? I think static is boring. I don't think anyone designs for a landscape to be static, and a landscape is never static. That is a human construct. The landscape changes the second you send me the check. What I do is create a landscape that I understand is adaptable. That's why it's so crucial for landscape architects, particularly if you're working in landscape architecture in a very client or or landscape-facing way where you are taking responsibility for your results afterwards, taking responsibility for understanding your successes and failures, designing from the perspective of understanding how stuff changes over time. That's really where I feel like planting designers and landscape architects should be practicing from. Static, I find, is a characteristic of a style that I find has been historically popular, largely an aesthetic style. A lot of times, people make decisions about their landscape that include lots of evergreen species. Those kind of get locked into a definitive shape through management. When I started learning landscape architecture, a lot of the work I found was deliberately static so that you could walk away from it and know that what you put down on paper will be that landscape's reality for as long as possible. It's just not the way it works. Came to landscape architecture and noticed that we were all using architects and engineering tools, computer programs, that this was a largely sedentary craft, that the work is largely about adding new things rather than focusing on what to remove and how to address the site first. 
Static landscapes to me are the traditional control over nature, lock a landscape plan in for as long as possible. It's just like it takes more energy to manage a landscape like that. It's ultimately going to disappoint you because everything's going to grow or change and die. I think that landscape architects really should be on foot a lot, looking at their work, understanding how it's changed over time, hopefully developing tools within the industry that factors time into the design rather than what a lot of designers, architects, whatever, create, which are these static plans and black and white with circles and labels. It's inadequate to the task, in my opinion. It produces very short-lived landscapes unless... You have the workaround of designing the management book that follows a design that you hand to a client and explains to them how to manage the development of a landscape so that it's got two lives, the life you were promised in the drawing and the life that it aspires to in the management plan. Did I circle too wide around that one, Craig? I hope. No, I like (laughs) that. I like that a lot. I give people a care sheet, but I never thought about a management book. I think the next challenge would be to get somebody to actually follow it. Right. I think it's 50%, maybe more than 50%. It might be 70%. We're using the tools and approaches that architects and engineers, these much older professions, doing what they do. Hopefully, in my lifetime, we see some more innovation relative to management plans and accountability to the overall survivability of the landscapes we design. Well, where do you see ecological design going? We certainly have a lot more work to do with figuring out targets. I think we're going to continue to get more and more sophisticated about not just kind of throwing native plants to this hemisphere into the ground and hoping for the best. I think we'll continue to move beyond designing for hope. I think increasingly we're going to have data available to reveal that different plants provide different resources and based on your goals, you get data tables and this sort of thing to make plant selections from. I think that the conversation will continue to help us understand what naturally occurring means and what provides the most benefit. If you're choosing naturally occurring plants in North America, is that columbine growing on the slopes of the Rockies really just as good as a columbine from a meadow here in North Carolina. I think increasingly we're going to get surprises with any sort of changes that happen in the climate. And I think we are going to develop more understanding about the impacts we have on the environment and are going to be really kind of being understanding, oh, maybe that porch light you keep on at night for no reason whatsoever is actually really doing a lot of harm relative to keeping stable populations of animals around your landscape. I used to go on these hikes when I lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, around a greenway that ran along the highway. I thought, golly, no wonder I don't hear any birds. It's so loud here, I don't want to hang out here. I think what will happen is we'll also begin to see some continued sophistication in municipal planning that help developers and landscape architects and development professionals design in a way that is a little bit lighter on the land, that will provide incentives for being lighter on the land, saving more trees, and planting more naturally occurring species within a smaller scope of what naturally occurring means. What do you wish people would do differently when designing buildings? and grow in a garden or landscape? Oh, I wish they'd hire more professionals. I guess I was having a conversation recently with some horticulturists about we all have these really exciting jobs, but no one's asking for that job. Meaning that the supporting the environment and supporting municipalities, institutions, and homeowners with creating cheaper, better, more functional, higher performing landscapes, everyone just calls a landscaping company. 
I don't think that the people we've been calling for landscapes are the right people to call to answer the challenge of designing ecologically. Some things I'd like to see in the future. I would love to see neighborhoods with accessible, affordable housing to support one individual who manages that neighborhood and subcontracts out lawn care, shrub and tree maintenance, etc. I would like to see less landscapes managed by individual homeowners or have homeowners have the option to delegate their landscapes to professionals, but not have to call landscape companies. I'd love to see landscape architecture as more of a consultation service or have more opportunities for landscape architects to provide consultation services to brick and mortar architecture and engineering firms rather than they be their own brick and mortar organization. Basically a lighter weight professional who is more mobile and more consultation based. I'd love to see large opportunities for people who are on speaking circuits to have opportunities to speak at public gardens and HOAs and be paid for it. So that really exciting information that's coming out of universities or in conversation with high-level professionals is reaching a professional audience beyond just social media. Some other changes I'd like to see, I really would kind of like this like brainwashing that the big box stores have given people about fall as the best time for planting. I really hope that people have more opportunities to call professionals for design, management, consultations, and for those services to be less expensive because there are more opportunities to provide them. Tools like Zoom and social media and even podcasts that we're doing right now also provide that service. A future spectrum of professionals that just hasn't been realized yet. Let's say, for example, a garden coach, somebody who can be paid to go from institution to institution, house to house, to provide excellent advice on why the landscape is behaving the way it does and what might be ways to quell problems. Those people are trapped clicking on AutoCAD in landscape architecture firms because it's the only opportunity they have to do any sort of planting design at a large scale and have a livable wage. I just kind of feel like the new world is trapped in the old world right now. We're bumping into big problems with climate, with social issues. I think we're also beginning to see it for the first time because of social media and the internet, of course. I think we also do legitimately have some big problems that I wasn't facing when I was young. Hasn't the Earth's population doubled since I was a youngster, I think? How can this not have an impact on the Earth in some way, or at least in the way you want to design in a way to like crowd out some of your neighbors and create your own bubble, which seems to be really the biggest ask I get from homeowners. How do I solve the stormwater problem? How do I also create a bubble for myself where I can come home and be separate from the outside world? Unplugging, I would think. Exactly. Yeah, unplugging. The pandemic was so good about introducing me to this kind of common human problem in that when you're forced to use your landscape, a lot of people realized, oh my gosh, I'm spending too much money on it. I'm taking care of something I don't even like, and I'm trapped with a handful of problems and I don't know who to call to help me think through that resolution. That's largely how my practice got wind beneath its wings, is providing landscape architecture level thinking for even small residential problems, just designing the process of design to be scalable, to helping solving a stormwater problem, to helping master plan 64-acre forest. 
What garden myth would you like to smash? I have this like really obnoxious one that I fantasize about saying over a microphone sometime at a conference where I talk about the lawn as a critical component of men's health care. I think that a lot of the reasons we talk about the lawn as an evil, well, I'm not sure all of it's right. Yes, the lawn is an unfortunate default only in the fact that I find that it doesn't provide very much. It provides some critical components to the garden. But it's our chosen default because it's so straightforward to manage, even though it's the highest maintenance decision you can make for your landscape. I think there's a cultural consideration in that a lot of my friends now are dads and they're on their second child. And honestly, mowing the lawn is like the 30 minutes they need to just take a breather. That's the kind of thing you say when you can jump in real quick and make better points about stuff. The myth of the lawn as the penultimate evil. I don't think the lawn's the penultimate evil. I think inconsistent energy in the landscape is a bigger evil, and that is planting beyond your capacity to manage. Putting up bird feeders, which sets birds up to create homes around your house, and then neglecting the bird feeders and creating problems there inconsistency, I find, is one of the biggest challenges. But you asked me about myths. One of the common myths I find is about the benefits of native plants. I find that someone who has had one foot in the native plant movement and one foot in what you might call conventional ornamental horticulture, I found that both of those groups within the last 15 to 20 years that I've been involved with them have not always been as respectful with one another as one might hope. One citing that one is prioritizing the wrong things and that one thinking that the other side is kind of full of a lot of like self-anointed saviors and all this kind of thing. To the ornamentalist's credit, once you give people, I think, moral high ground about something they're doing, then you kind of can get a lot of, you know, saviordom and victimhood, both of which can create irrational responses that alienate other people. One of the myths with native plants is that they naturally do better. No, they don't. You can't stick a naturally occurring shade plant in the sun and expect it to work. Dang, it'll work. That native plants are naturally more drought tolerant or just longer lived or longer lasting. No, not really. What if you plant something that the deer love? Furthermore, that native plants are just generally better no matter what, and that your landscape or your design approach should pass some sort of purity test. I think that's all just like asking for alienation and stalls the movement forward. The myth is that you have to go all in or you're part of the problem. I don't think that's how it works. I think we all need to get comfortable with thinking with more complexity. That requires more energy. And so paying attention to that screen time, are you burning up a lot of energy that you might spend in critical thinking with chasing Facebook? I don't know. Uh, This is a challenge I'm giving myself. Not to get into these tribal poles, but spend our time and energy somewhere in the middle, even if it's messier and more complicated. What's your earliest garden memory? The garden memory that got me out of aquariums and onto the land and brought me to where we are today would be I was gardening with a friend and I bought this night blooming water lily. We had this little koi pond and I set it up in there and it put out lily pads and stuff. It wasn't otherwise very interesting. And then one night I went outside with a headlamp on and doing some sort of little task in the garden. Boom, this huge, aggressively purple flower standing a foot and a half out of the water was blooming. It was the night blooming water lily. That experience was so powerful that I'm still chasing it today. It was awe. Awe was my first, specifically, garden memory. 
I want to feel like this for the rest of my life. Why did you decide to pursue the landscape architecture profession? I was originally trained as an artist. I was working as an installation artist and painter in my early 20s while I was also working as a professional aquarium keeper. I was living in a downtown area where homeless people were sleeping in the garden, eating some of the vegetables that I was growing. I was gardening with people who were very socially conscious, planting for public engagement, vegetables at the street side, that sort of thing. I just was like, oh my gosh, my paintings, I am not really contributing to the human condition through my paintings right now. I'm finding that gardening touches more lives. And I would later understand that what I was aspiring to was to create more instances of social justice and environmental justice. Those gave me a mission and lit my fire. I moved and started a horticulture program with a landscape design focus. Then after I received a degree in that, I was ready to roll. 2008 hit. The economy crashed. There was very little work to be done, and anybody needing help from a landscape designer were really looking for a landscape architect. I was already in school mode. I had an opportunity to do some assistant teaching and decided to stick it out and get a master's degree in landscape architecture, which ended up being a significantly different world than I was trained to as a landscape designer. Being trained first in horticulture, then residential landscape architecture, really set me up to contribute to landscape architecture in a meaningful way. Then later having jobs at mow and blow companies, really made an effort in the last 10 years to create an apprenticeship of my own design that hits as many different expressions of landscape work as possible. Would you tell us a funny garden story? One of the most interesting things that are happening to me right now, I am designing in an urban core. Designing in the urban core is what got me interested in gardening, right? Because I had people with disadvantages eating out of my garden. I'm glad to be back in it. I've got this funny thing that's occurring in my garden. I live on a street that connects urban neighborhoods to the downtown core, and there's a really active nightlife. People coming back and forth between bars and clubs, but also people just kind of poking around the neighborhood, seeing who's car doors are open or who may still have mail in the mailbox or an Amazon package still on the porch. There's this really interesting kind of like nightlife that your ring doorbell will pick up too. What I'm seeing is happening is there's some sort of informal economy and my landscape seems to be the bank. There's one shrub that people keep leaving beers under. They appear and then they disappear. I see all sorts of little packages and little things left under specific plants in my landscape. I don't know why my landscape, well, I do know why my landscape's been chosen. I'm the only one with a block with a rich, vivacious, fully loaded landscape that's spilling over the edges of the sidewalk. There's a lot of stuff you can hide in there. Basically, I am this central station for an informal economy in my city. It's bizarre. I think finding the beers and then having them disappear underneath my shrub is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> it's been your, wait a minute. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Back in the day, when I was doing aquariums professionally, 
I was really looking at someone named Takashi Amano. Takashi Amano is a Japanese aquarium keeper who really took on the development of a new style in aquariums, particularly planted aquariums, where he was planting sometimes in a half a cubic foot of water, like a liter of water or something, creating these magnificent landscapes where the fish supposed to be like tiny birds. He was also being inspired by his is native Japan, creating landscapes underwater using native plants to create these landscape paintings underwater. I'm still building off of the inspiration and lessons that I learned from Takashi Amana, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, but still has an active practice called Aqua Design Amano, I think. That was one of my biggest inspirations. I also find a lot of inspiration through music, particularly electronic music and classical music. Music with fewer lyrics, music that has a lot of room for the imagination. When it comes to landscape design, really I draw on landscape painters, musicians, and music for my inspiration and can be slow to evaluate and understand the work of my peers and predecessors, I suppose, because I want my approach to landscape to be really clean right now. I really want it to reflect my personal vision for novel landscapes without too much influence from a lot of people that you might find in landscape theory or landscape history books. I'm really trying to understand really how to extend roots into the past and branches into the future and really drive my inspiration from unexpected places, largely just for the purpose of being competitive. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Let's take my existing landscape. I inherited a landscape that was just gravel. The previous homeowners had no interest in any sort of landscape work, and so they just buried the entire landscape in a couple of feet of driveway gravel. I thought, well, I'm just going to sprinkle a little soil on this and plant for it. My initial planting scheme was really, really native, trying to just select species that I knew I could find here in Durham County. Put that in and it was a pretty bad failure. I lost a lot of species. That's because my landscape is south-facing, sun-blasted, super windy at one of the highest ridges in my city. I should have planted for the environment, not just native for native sake. So I embarked on a two-year period of choosing plants based on the environment that I was in. I was looking at what are these analog environments, balds on the top of mountains, going to nearby hanging rock and seeing what species you'd find at the top that would survive being wind blasted, being baked, but also being really, really cold at night. I looked at the chaparral, at Mediterranean climates, so I took a really global view. How does my landscape feel and plant for how it behaves? I ended up coming up with a very colorful, very cosmopolitan plant palette that looked great, but 
Was it providing resources for increased populations of insects and birds? I don't think it was. So what I did then was to retrofit native plants into the landscape to make sure that I was providing those resources or my cosmopolitan planting palette wasn't. Now that I had this landscape that's a brutal place to be in and I planted cosmopolitan plants from all over the world, they established structure and that structure improved the hydrology of the landscape. It improved the stability in the soil column. Now it was time to start adding native plants that are more local to me from stream corridors and forests. Now that they had that structure and that shade and that hydrology in place, they were more successful than when they were just planted in the full baking sun. What I learned is that if you don't put the right plant in the right place, it ain't going to work. That old adage that I've known now for two decades still rings true. I think that was a valuable lesson in that there's some danger in there with native for native sake. It takes a little bit more understanding of the microclimates and the behavior and the performance of your landscape before you jump in. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? Oh, gosh, that you can spend the rest of your life learning how to do it. And to be careful of anybody who is a little bit too confident about their experience or their opinions. That seems really sophomore. If you haven't been humbled enough to adjust your language and remove the definitives out of it, then it's, you know, kind of a level of professional or gardener that I need to just kind of like be careful with their advice. I'm finding that the gardeners that have the best advice to me provide responses that have recognized that there's not a one size fits all. The definitives in the landscape are laughable. This has helped me identify other professionals with the maturity and the experience that I need to help drag me up to the next level. Because all of this that I'm saying today is language and ideas that other people have just bequeathed to me. It's just me trying to be open enough to hear them and understand. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have a lot of fun. A lot of that fun comes from being able to take the hits on the chin and take the failures and learn from them. Having fun means involving other people, not only in the process of gardening, but also in the enjoyment of it. Also understanding just how much healthier my body and mind are just from the simple act of gardening and to relieve myself of the responsibility of having a big goal. I've got smaller goals, but ultimately I'm still dabbling. That gives me some relief. You've already told us some about your garden. Do you tell us anything else about it? I would say that involving other people and creating space for other people, particularly in my front yard where I have boulders set up, I have seat walls right on the sidewalk, I've created a space for people where I can share veggies, I can share fruit, I can share a story, I can share a beer. Apparently, I'm also part of this informal economy. That designing a space that is to be enjoyed and shared with other people, not just this private bubble that I can hide in, I found that that is not only improves my health, but it improves social health and the health of others around me. It's just such a joy to be able to provide a gift to the neighborhood, I guess you could say. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're applying this year? It was that lesson that, oh my goodness, 
there is a certain degree of ecological success that I'm having in my garden with my cosmopolitan plants that I would later attribute to just creating structure and shade and compost that the inclusion of more native species made that ecology even more rich. Understanding like, oh, wait a minute, you can achieve ecological results with plants from all over the globe, that there's a structural element to this that serves animals and insects. Then if you really want to tweak that and provide for more biodiversity than retrofitting natives back in is okay. You can always add and subtract to the garden. It's not finished, despite what that landscape architect's drawing may have told you. What plant are you in love with this week? Oh, hey, I've got a mum problem. I really love collecting people's mums, especially when they throw them away. I just plant them in the garden and they do great. I don't understand why people are throwing mums away. So I've been scouting the neighborhood and see some really pretty ones that I'm going <laughs> to snag once, <laughs> once the Christmas decor goes up. Preston, tell us how people may connect with you. People can find me at PrestonMontague.com. I'm also active on Instagram and Facebook. Just follow my name, Preston Montague. This has been Episode 80, Achieving Successful Ecological Landscape Design with Preston Montague. Thank you, Preston. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.